Ethan's log. Start at one, two, three, four, five. Wait, wait a minute. Isn't that the combination of my luggage? Anyways, Captain's log. Today's sensor sweep of the Omega Quadrant has revealed a large quantity of neutrino clusters with their access codes exposed for the entire galaxy to exploit. Oh, sad panda. Our away team was able to contact the red shirts responsible, but I fear that this growing trend of poor security habits, combined with the vast infinite resources of the cosmos, is only getting worse. Howdy, I'm Chris Wall. You can follow me at Chris Wall on Twitter. And with me is my co-host, who's ultra snarky about everything networking because I tend to blame it all the time, Ethan Banks. He's at EC Banks on Twitter. And this is the Data Knots podcast. Welcome, friends. You can find this in all of our shows on iTunes, in your favorite podcatcher, or at packetpushers.net. I just had to twist the knife a little bit on Ethan because, you know, every time we try to record something, there's always a network issue or whatnot. <laughs> and I tend to blame, like, drop packets and, you know, other whimsical things. But enough of that. We don't need any more networking today. Let's introduce our guest and get nerdy about public cloud automation and security. Ken Hoy, welcome to the show. Who are you? What do you do? And let's get nerdy. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Chris. And thanks, Ethan. My name is Kenneth Hoy, or Ken. I'm a technical marketing engineer at Rubrik, and I'm focused particularly around cloud and automation and security. Yeah, it's a healthy list. It's certainly it's certainly been popular lately, especially as I read the blogosphere and all the, the face palms that I get. Uh, you know, I, I thought for the conversation, we'd start more on kind of like cloudy topics around automation, infrastructures, code, DevOps that sort of jazz, because I know you've spent a lot of time in that world at Rackspace and other places. So can we start defining kind of your thoughts around, well, let's start with automation. You know, what is that? Why is that important, especially in a cloud context? Yeah, sure. And I'm glad we're kind of breaking it down uh, between concepts like automation, DevOps, infrastructure as code, because I see that get mixed up all the time. And I actually think there's some fairly clear delineations that you have to make in order to kind of um, make it this all these terms useful. Oh, this will be good. Ken thinks he has solid definitions for these terms. So everybody on notice, pay attention. You're about to That's get right. schooled. <laughs> and if it gets hot, then um, I'll start charging for my wisdom. But um, <laughs> excellent. But automate. Let's yeah. Let's start the t- uh, idea of automation. So I think this is actually a concept that's probably much the easiest to think about. Right. This idea that how about we take things that you normally have to do manually, repeatedly, the same task. And let's figure out a way to do it in such a way that you basically hit the button once and you'll do those tasks for you automatically and repeatedly in the same way. So a good example would be, let's say you um, do a certain task on your server every single week at the same time. So what if you could just script that to run some commands that do that task Mm -hmm. and do it for you every single time? So you don't have to, instead of typing in 20 commands, you just type the one command to run the script. That's basically automation, right? Taking a manual task and making it automated. It's, that's important because I always say the biggest weakness uh, with any kind of system is the human element. Nothing like a fat finger to gum up the works. Yeah, and we've seen a number of that out in the world where it's like, <laughs> I think what, what uh, all of all of like S3 in the East went down because someone pushed an asterisk instead of, a, I don't know, some kind of character got goofed right, exactly. uh, or wasn't properly trained kind of peeling the onion on that a little bit. How many times do I have to repeat a task before I should automate it? You know, where do you have kind of the litmus test as to this should be automated? Is it everything? Is it stuff that's routine? You know, where do you draw the line? Yeah, so I, I think I would say anything routine. And obviously, that's a very broad definition, right? Routine could be every single day, 
or it could be every single week. I almost feel like any anything that's some uh, uh, where you have to type in more than a few lines and you got to do it uh, more than once, it's probably good to automate it because you, mm. there's always a chance you can make mistakes. And think about it. Some of the scripts that you run to change or fix things generally happens when there's a problem. And when you have a problem, you're under stress, and that's when you're most likely to make a mistake manually. Uh, yeah, Ken, I was talking to a guy who works for a value-added reseller, and he uses automation to stand up network environments for his customers. It's not something he does all the time, but because of the complexity of it, the stress of it, et cetera, it happens enough times per year that they're standing up a new network environment that they've scripted all that out, automated it, so that it's uh, much easier and less error-prone to get it done and faster. Exactly. I think automation is probably the easiest one for folks that are listening to kind of grok. The next one I wanted to talk about was infrastructure as code. Ken actually sent over a link that I thought was interesting called infrastructure as code, a reason to smile. We'll have a link in the show notes, but there's this great paragraph that I think everyone kind of cringes because they have had it happen to them, but it's like um, there's an issue with the server. It dies, whatever. And you get flashbacks of all of the work you had to do to configure that server. And they're talking about trying to recall every component that was installed and the versions and the order that they were installed. And I remember doing this because every server was kind of handcrafted and you had to remember, oh yeah, you have to change this comp file over in this one directory. And it ends with, you request the ground to open up and swallow you, but unfortunately, or in fact, fortunately, it cannot hear you, which I also kind of agree with. So starting that is kind of the platform around the problem. Uh, then how is infrastructure as code the solution, Ken? Yeah, so maybe a good way, good thing to do is kind of delineate, as I was saying earlier, automation versus infrastructure as code for it. So I think automation, it's a component of creating an infrastructure as code type system, but the two are not exactly the same. Infrastructure as code really has this idea of not only do we want to automate how you provision infrastructure, but you're actually treating that infrastructure like you're, you're developing software. So if you think about what that means, it means you actually do version control, <laughs> right? And uh, most, when you do scripts, which we would consider automation, almost no one does version control of their scripts. Uh, it's just not something that... Yeah, I do. I just put like V1 at the end of the file name and then copy paste it into a, a V2. <laughs> right. I mean, it's not, that's not really version control. I, or, or you add your initials to the end of it. Or, yeah. or you get this script and it says like final, final, Bob's copy, V129, you know, something like that. Right. And, and the version control is important because the, the reality is, um, I remember someone telling me once, um, just as easy to automate uh, screw-ups as it is to automate uh, things that work. And humans can be very good at that. So if you automate a mistake, how do you know at what point did you make that mistake? What changes did you make to, to your code in order to make that mistake? And that's where version control comes in. You can see you should be, if it's infrastructure as code, you should be able to look through your, your provisioning and see what has changed from one version to another that made a, created that error, that mistake uh, that you did not intend. You think about it at a very large scale, that's what you want to do. You want to be able to go back and check on mistakes and be able to roll back those mistakes. And you just can't do that if you're just running out scripts, having to guess what you did wrong. Hmm. Okay, so we've talked about automation. We've got infrastructure as code. And let's move it ahead then to DevOps. What is DevOps and how is it different from automation and infrastructure as code? I'm probably not the first person on this show who said DevOps is not just about technology, but it's actually about culture and process. 
And that's really important. So these things like infrastructure as code can help uh, create uh, a DevOps type environment, but just running Ansible (laughs) or Terraform doesn't automatically make you a DevOps type of uh, company, right? You have to have the culture process in place to actually uh, move things along. And and one of the things um, I talk about a lot when we talk when I talk about DevOps and infrastructure as code is this idea that that DevOps is really about trying to cut down lead time versus cutting down cycle time. So we try to find that very quickly. <laughs> so yeah, difference between lead and cycle time. Yeah, it, so, it doesn't immediately grok. Yeah. Yeah. So cycle time is the amount of time it takes to get a, a certain set of tasks done. And lead time is, for example, the time when a customer makes, when somebody makes a request for something and that entire process from beginning and from the time they make the request to the time they receive what is they requested. So an example here would be if, um, if you have a developer, let's say, that said, hey, I need a development environment set up. Right from the time that he makes that request to the time that he can actually assume control of that environment, that's the lead time. The time it may take for you to actually stand up some servers or, or virtual machines and configure them. That's cycle time. And the reason that's uh, important to differentiate is if you just reduce the cycle time of doing one piece of that kind of that, that value chain, uh, it doesn't mean that you reduce uh, lead time. So. I'll give you a story. So uh, did you hear about the Flippy Burger robot? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, there's a company called Miso Robotics in Japan that created a, a, a robot that can flip like 20,000 burgers a day or something like that and take them off the grill. And it actually uses things like AI and sensors to be able to make sure that it's cooked the burger perfectly before it takes it off the grill. Uh, this franchise called Cali Burger, I've never eaten there myself, but... They basically say, hey, we want to start rolling out uh, Flippy Burger robots in all our stores. So they brought one in, and the Flippy robot worked perfectly. It completely reduced the cycle time it took to actually cook a burger and get it off the grill. Okay. Within two days, they had to take the robot out of service, even though it was working perfectly. Because they cut the cycle time of making those burgers, it was actually going too fast for the humans. They had to operate around the burgers, right? So they didn't have enough cashiers who could take the orders fast enough, and they didn't have uh, humans who could put the burgers in the buns and put the you know all the fixings on them fast enough. So the robot was operating so fast that the, these, these burgers were sitting there getting cold. <laughs> I see a market for more robots. That's right. So that was a situation where they optimized the cycle time, right? The time it took to do that task of cooking the burger – but they didn't bother to optimize the, everything else that, uh, put, that made up the lead time, which is the taking the order, making the transaction, and then building out the burger and getting it to the customer. So Ken, knowing all of that around the concepts of DevOps, the practice of automating things and treating infrastructure as code, let's tie that back into public cloud, specifically AWS. How does you know, using their infrastructure, treating it like code, you know, does that make life easier to manage? How does it kind of contrast to on-prem life? Because ideally, everything would be easier, simpler, better, stronger, faster, et cetera, in public cloud, especially as it relates to those three topics that we just covered. I think the genius of AWS is that they figured out how to take, you know, what traditionally been hardware platforms and then virtual machines 
And they basically turned them, in a sense, into these primitives that you could control through an API. So instead of having to walk through all these you know, steps to provision a virtual machine or provision an entire network, you basically just make one or two API calls. And that's great because you can, if there's an API, you can code against that. And that makes AWS infinitely easier uh, and faster to provision and to change, and which really, um, I think, helps with uh, experimentation and with, with innovation, which I think it's really, if you're doing public cloud, right, that's what you're using it for. You wanna, you, you're going to AWS or Azure or any other public clouds because you want to move faster and you want to be able to do a lot of great experiments. But I feel like there's some trade-offs there, not necessarily around AWS, but just some articles that I was reading around. Okay, if you're treating infrastructure as code, playing devil's advocate, now there's a lot more time spent planning and building the configuration and all of the kind of the friction around choosing the right tools. And there was even kind of a, I don't know if this is a tinfoil hat kind of thing or not, but bad configurations can get duplicated on all the servers. So, you know, kind of like to the point of the automation topic that you brought up, Ken, around automating something bad is just doing bad things more efficiently. What do you say to these kind of things? You know, basically just there's more planning, more config work, kind of the toil around picking the right tools and then potentially propagating a bad config everywhere. Yeah. And I always kind of throw back at when is there ever a complex task that you shouldn't plan for? <laughs> that's always going to be, pl- that's always planning <laughs> right? Granted, like when I was an admin, sometimes I, pl- I plan things on the fly. And that's usually where mistakes occur. So yes, there's plan. There's you do have to plan things ahead. You you do have to make sure that your code is solid and that you're not automating bad configurations. But that's the case even if you're doing it manually, right? You still have to check. But I think the great thing about taking this infrastructure as code approach is you can actually you're actually seeing what it is that you are going to deploy sometimes before you even deploy it, and then when so you can make uh, you can solve those mistakes before they occur. Or if you do make a mistake, at least you have an audit trail you can follow, as opposed to me manually, unless I have a key logger on my computer, if I'm manually doing something, I, there's no way for me to, to know for sure what it is that I typed that, that caused the mistake. So I, I got a couple of quick takeaways here, Chris. First of all, just... This was kind of a reminder to me that DevOps has been co-opted by a lot of companies because, hey, DevOps is trendy and we all want to feel like we're a part of it. And so we slap DevOps on things inside of our internal processes. But true DevOps is really a cultural change that IT organizations struggle to transition to in a meaningful sense as I've talked to a lot of people about what's really going on uh, inside their shops. I think it's more often the case that what you're really doing is you, you've pivoted your operational processes to leverage automation, or maybe you've even leveled up to infrastructure as code. But to call it DevOps would be a stretch because, t- to me, DevOps implies much more than that. And then one other quick takeaway is just that version control for your infrastructure is a thing. That is a fascinating concept to me. It's like, oh, things aren't what they should be right now. Great. Roll back to what it was before. That is powerful. Network people are used to having a rollback capability on a lot of platforms where they can go back to what it was and everything's okay again. But to think of your infrastructure as a whole that way and being able to run uh, version control is uh, is very powerful. What grabbed your attention, Chris? I just like the idea that there's some guidelines to automation. You know, it's not just automate everything or automate something that has to be done every day as an example. There's no specific point there. But you can also look at 
what tasks are worth automating based on how much complexity is removed and is consistency important to me? So, you know, at the same time, you don't have to automate everything just for giggles, but you can be strategic about what you pick to automate and actually go after things that aren't just, okay, I do this task a hundred times. Maybe it's super simple and you go after something that you want to remove complexity from. All right, Ken, we got a handle on what uh, DevOps versus infrastructure as code versus automation is. We've got a good handle on moving to cloud and what that might mean in that context. So, okay, let, let's bring this up to AWS. There's, there's new things going on. There's a, a constant stream of announcements. It's almost annoying to try to keep up with it. If you follow the blog, it's overwhelming. Uh, one of the things, though, that's been a hot topic, containers. And containers been uh, a long time what, what's been running underneath AWS. So how can we... How can we get in on that? It seems overwhelming to people with all the pieces and parts that go in to bring up a container system. Yeah. So the thing is, though, I think AWS is actually doing a pretty decent job of trying to make that more simple. So while also giving choice. So AWS has long, uh, fairly long, had their own container service. That was basically proprietary code that they were running to, to manage Docker containers. And then at the latest reInvent, they announced two new, couple of new things. One is they announced support for Kubernetes um, and essentially became the last big public cloud provider to offer support for Kubernetes. So customers can use go that route. And then kind of to make it, you've tried to make it even more simple for customers. They came out with something called Fargate. Uh, think of Fargate as kind of a layer of abstraction that's in front of the containers. Whether you're deploying a container using uh, Amazon's native container service or using the Kubernetes managed service, you can actually use Fargate as kind of front end for that. And what Fargate does is uh, it extracts even the part where you would have to create clusters and just say, hey, here's some here's some task I want to run. Here's some code. Uh, you hand it off to Fargate, and Fargate goes and sets up all the all the nodes underneath <laughs> the containers for you. I'm just laughing because it's a managed service of the managed service. And if I find Fargate too confusing, I suppose AWS will have something to manage my Fargate instances as well. Yeah, probably uh, <laughs> something. And it probably, well, probably have something to do with machine learning. So, okay. So just, just, for, just for clarity here then. So we've got – so first of all, they've announced the, the Kubernetes support. And, and as you said, the last one to get on board with that. But I mean the Kubernetes momentum is unstoppable. There's everyone's – Container orchestration package of choice is some is Kubernetes or some flavor thereof where they've layered management and the ease of use layer services on top of it, and and Fargate takes that even even another step. Uh, you're saying is that is that the right way to think about it? Yeah, it, it takes away even the any knowledge you need to have about the underlying infrastructure for setting up a Kubernetes cluster. It just goes, I just want to run some code. I happen to run it running Kubernetes. And AWS, you take care of setting up all the clusters for me and getting that uh, those code up there. Because hmm. that was the big gripe about OpenStack, right? Was setting it up and standing it up was A, really difficult, and B, basically where all the vendors were, was around selling you their own flavor that could be stood up. I don't know if that's a fair assessment in your eyes or not, but that's what I saw at all the OpenStack summits was like, this is hard, pay us, we'll make it easy, <laughs> you know, move on. Yeah, and and, the, and Kubernetes is, get, is getting better, but I don't think there's many people who tell you that uh, Kubernetes is easy to run, especially at large scale. So this helps with that. Now, Ken, for, for clarity here, you mentioned that Amazon has their own 
container service that they've been using right along to manage what are effectively Docker containers underneath. When you're leveraging AWS and using these container services, do you know you're dealing with Docker container images? Does that actually matter to you? Or are you just interacting with an Amazon service and the container format is is sort of irrelevant? Uh, No, so so you can actually use regular Docker commands. So uh, if you're managing the containers themselves, you are pulling images at that level. It's really the, the orchestration level where you're basically either using Kubernetes or handing or using uh, Elastic Container Service to do the orchestration pieces. Uh, okay. You also mentioned uh, you pulling containers, which reminds me of registry services. Has Amazon got a registry service for me? Yeah. So the, the Amazon Elastic Container Registry. So essentially, it's their, I guess you could say, competing version to, to, to the Docker registry, except that it's obviously running on, on Amazon's cloud. I'm not sure what the uptake is on that. I'm sh- obviously, if you're using ECS, I'm, I'm sure that you're probably choosing to use the Elastic Container Registry. I'm not sure if you're going the Kubernetes route, whether you would do that or you continue using something else. Would there be an advantage in it? It integrates with IAM, that kind of thing, so you can keep your security scheme uh, the same across all the different services you're using? Yeah, I think as of any service that Amazon rolls out that has a kind of a competing um, analog, and outside AWS, if you use the Amazon service, you're sure that it's very well uh, integrated with everything else within Amazon. So if you're all in on AWS, this is probably the fastest way to get going, to continue going. It's probably to use their service. It's funny you put it all in because that is the case. You you can just, just start moving all your data up there, fire everything up, and then the deeper you go, the deeper it gets. And you can be all in. Take my money. Take all of it. You have all the things. So let's switch gears a bit then onto the topic of serverless or functions as a service, which are similar definitions, I guess not quite the same. Uh, what's what's AWS doing there to kind of impress? Yeah, so I think first of all, the, the thing that I'm probably most impressed right now is not even techno- the technology, although I think the technology behind Lambda, which is Amazon's serverless uh, service, is <laughs> uh, called. It's actually, what I'm most impressed by is actually the relentlessness in which they're applying serverless. So in some Azure and Google Cloud all have some flavor of serverless, but it's a feature or service they offer with AWS. Not only are they offering serverless to customers, they are internally using serverless and trying to figure out as many ways to apply serverless to every, every other service that they have. Because that's the rub, right? You know, you can build a technology, but sometimes it's like a a solution looking for a problem. So I guess that's, it feels like that's sort of the case in some ways that uh, there was some examples on another show where it's talking, we talked about using it kind of as a message queue or as a trigger for alerts and things like that. But that doesn't sound that interesting, to be honest with you. Like we've had that forever, you know, decades. So I still feel like we're kind of scratching the surface to figure out where to plug this in. Yeah. Well, and people have definitely been burned by the whole, like, we have all these trends that come up and everyone's like told, move to this, like a swarm of fish. And then they do, and they're kind of disappointed. So I yeah. hope this won't be the case for serverless. Yeah. The funny thing is when it first came out, my prediction was um, where it would get first get traction in a lot of enterprises would be as a, a replacement for cron jobs. <laughs> <laughs> cron job as a service. Cross, you know what? You know, That's cracks. exactly what's happened. Yeah. <laughs> um, Does that feel good? <laughs> But I, I think the, the interesting thing about uh, AWS kind of creating serverless everything 
is that even if you're a user who's not ready to use serverless for your code, um, in our case, it's just by using certain AWS services, you're already getting familiar with the power of serverless. You know, for example, the um, AWS just recently GA'd, I think, um, serverless Aurora, which basically is this idea of instead of provisioning database servers, you're actually, they're provisioning these Lambda functions to spin up database instances when you need it. And when you don't need it, it automatically shuts down so you don't get charged for it. What's your take on uh, machine learning services in AWS right now? Because that's, ah, it's one of those things where is that real and can we leverage it? Do, you know, from what they've announced, is that useful to us where, uh, where we're all going to be using what AWS can give us there? So yes and no, <laughs> like everything else. Um, I, 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 don't, I still don't see most users having a use for machine learning you know, in their own shop. And part of that is because I don't think the technology is quite there yet, right? So like one of the ongoing jokes that even I think AWS recognizes is sometimes the machine learning doesn't always figure things out correctly. So uh, for example, they, they had something called Deep Lens that they announced at, at reInvent, which was a way to basically look at, like take a picture or video or something and then apply machine learning to it. One of the things that we're trying to do is, can you configure deep lens so you can so you can differentiate between a hot dog and a real dog? Wait, a hot dog and a, like those those look totally different. I don't right. But that's that the part, that was kind of a joke, right? It's like so, so in some cases, machine learning algorithm has can't uh, tell the difference yet. I remember because well, I, I was there for the the keynote and was listening in, and they're like, "Oh, you can set up a camera to watch your couch, and if your dog jumps up on there, you can have it trigger an alert." And I'm kind of like, yeah, that that's possible. But man, that seems like a lot of work for a very simple task. <laughs> yeah. So I think for those things, for a lot wide consumer use or for a lot of large enterprise use, I think we're many years away. I think where deep learning, machine learning is actually starting to take hold is actually uh, kind of like serverless as the underpinning for a lot of the AWS services. Um, so a good example is um, they just they announced something called Guard Duty. Think of it as a security analysis. So you can look through your AWS environment and tell you where you have security holes. Underpinning that is actually machine learning, where AWS has kind of looked at the stats of all their customer base, figured out what are the best practices for for applying security, and then basically use that to tell you, hey, Here's the five things you need to change if you um, that could be security holes in your environment. It's not learning from actual admin practices, right? Because we're pretty bad about leaving everything set to like admin, admin, and allow any. You know, it's, yeah. it's it's ruling those out as outliers, right? Yeah, I, I think the assumption is Amazon probably follows best practices. Okay, <laughs> and they're using that as a grid. But the the point is, um, as as things change, as security practices change. Guard duty should be able to adjust to that and be able to tell you, hey, here's things that you should be doing now that maybe you weren't didn't have to do, say, um, you know, thirty days ago or a year ago. Yeah, oh, that's cool. At the same time, I hear the cries of like a million consultants suddenly cried out and then were silenced <laughs> by AI. <laughs> Wanted to bring up a quote that you had on one of your blogs from a year ago. Ken, and you talked about data gravity and storage and data-focused offerings within Amazon. And it was around data gravity, which is kind of the thought that as you accumulate more data, the services tend to, to go towards that data. 
Uh, you talk about this being a challenge and an opportunity for AWS. Anything around that space changed since the last year that you posted that article that you wanted to share? The, in terms of challenge, not a whole lot, mainly because I think they rolled out Snowmobile two years ago, and I'm, I'm not sure what bigger thing can you roll out <laughs> than a truck that can ship your data to AWS. So I think hmm. uh, as long as they can get wider, if, if they can get more enterprises to buy into that and use the Snowmobile, that's one way for them to overcome the challenge of getting data from on-prem to the cloud. Uh, but in terms of opportunities, um, I don't think uh, the opportunity has ever been greater, both for Amazon and, and for customers who are, you know, pretty bought into AWS, right? Because one thing you'll notice is that there's a lot of services right now that are constantly being rolled out that do things with your data once it's in AWS. So um, I think, you know, for a lot, there was a time where AWS, particularly S3, was just a place for you to dump your data. Like almost as like just as cheap and deep storage. And I think we're kind of well past that now to where you can take that data and you can do all kinds of analytics and machine learning against that. So I think what I'm seeing is like an exponential growth in the amount of services that AWS is releasing that says, once your data lands in AWS, here's all the valuable things you can do with it to make it more worthwhile for you to, not only leave your data there, but to continue to, to add more data to the to their data lake. Mm. One more service, Ken, that's kind of off to the side, I thought was worth bringing up, especially to people that listen to this podcast, they might be really interested in it. And that is Amazon LightSail. So I did a little poking around. It looks like a virtual private server service. You pay different monthly increments depending on uh, how much data transfer, memory and CPU you want and so on. Uh, and there's a Linux and a Windows flavor. What do you know about that? Is it like cool for a home lab or a blog? Is there an enterprise application? How would you position this service? Yeah, obviously. So one way is that it is, it is a um, kind of a cheap uh, or inexpensive approach <laughs> to running cloud. There's actually a, um, a couple of providers out there right today um, that specialize in this, what they call virtual private servers, whereas uh, you essentially you just spend a few dollars a month on this one machine and you're probably just using it to host a website. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm actually looking at it. I have a reason to be moving one of, uh, one of my blogs around somewhere and this popped up here because of this show. And I think I may try that, just see how it goes. It's priced competitively, maybe slightly aggressively. Um, so it looks, it looks promising. Uh, if I'm an enterprise, am I interested in that too? I don't think, this is not an enterprise product per se. It's really, I think the audience here is really one, um, a, a developer, maybe someone who's like at the very, very early stages of wanting to prototype a potential product and doesn't want to spend all, really any money. I mean, it, this is probably like even before they have angel funding, right? Now you have something you can use that can easily prototype. The other use case I think would be a company where maybe a small department needs to do, you know, spin up a um, a web page for an event, and they only need to have that for a few months, and but they don't really have a established budget for it, and now they can use LightSail for that. And if you think about it, I think the way they're looking at LightSail is it's kind of becomes, it's just another entry point for people who may not be using AWS today, and to say. You know, once they start using LightSail, maybe it becomes easier for them to start using these other services like EC2 or, or, or S3. 
And I think it's part of that broader approach that AWS has, where they're, they're trying to create more and more entry points for people to come in to AWS other than the traditional using S3 or EC2. So like Sales One, for example, Lambda is another, and then uh, VMware and AWS obviously is another entry point that they're trying to set up to get people in. So I found it interesting that Ken brought up AWS having a strong focus on serverless. I mean, I've seen the marketing and and the push, you know, kind of in the the thought leader space, but I thought it was interesting that Lambda functions as an offering are also being pretty well consumed internally. I, I did not know that. And I'm definitely interested to see how that particular flavor of technology gets consumed or, or perhaps adds value to the ecosystem because kind of like Ken brought up, it, it just it seems to be kind of a an alert triggering thing at this point. It's not really doing anything all that groundbreaking. Uh, what about you, Ethan? Ooh, it's the AWS all-in strategy really caught my attention. It reminds me of the Apple ecosystem strategy. Yeah, I know you're a Windows guy. But the deeper you get into the Apple world, which which I am, the more that Apple hooks you because there's a tight integration between iPhone and the Mac, for example. And you've got iMessages running on multiple platforms and there's CarPlay. And the more you use these services, the harder it is to leave Apple. And I think AWS, that's how that's starting to look now. I mean, data gravity might be the, that initial magnet that gets you stuck to AWS, but then it's the database and it's the these other related services that are going to keep you stuck. And, and I guess the question is, is that a bad thing? I don't know. It's hard to say, but everyone seems to hate vendor lock-in. They talk about hating vendor lock-in. But on the other hand, if it's working for you, yeah. All right, Ken. Now that that we have snowballed and snowmobiled all of our data into Amazon, well, let's secure that stuff. And and honestly, you've been talking about cloud security quite a bit over the years, uh, especially recently. I've been reading your stuff around encryption and healthy security practices. I guess, A, before we go deeper into the security thing, kind of what prompted that? Why is this Why is this something that you're kind of passionate and focused on? Uh, first of all, it, it hit a nerdy part of me, uh, the whole idea, whole idea of cryptography and um, doing a lot of math. <laughs> that that all sounds horrible to me. <laughs> <laughs> So this whole idea of like these really arcane and complex algorithms to encrypt data really kind of uh, scratched an itch in my brain. So I decided to kind of get deeper into it and then uh, realize just how important that was in the cloud. And a lot of actually was prompted also by Werner Vogel during his keynote in reInvent. He said two things that stuck with me. One was he said, from this point forward, every developer should also be a security engineer. And then the other thing he said was that everyone's model should be encrypt everything everywhere. So that's kind of what prompted me to kind of think about those things. Do you practice what you preach? Do you encrypt everything and, you know, like use WhatsApp instead of a regular text message and all that kind of jazz? Or I would use more of that if other people. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, but I do encrypt everything that I store and I use you know, things like two-factor authentication and password managers and for everything for everything I do. The reason I'm kind of tickling that apart is oftentimes we'll have people that write or whatnot and they say, oh, you should do all these great things and then they don't because what's actually happening is it creates so much friction in their day job that it's just unbearable. So it tends to be, you know, uh, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> but if, if you're able to implement that in your like kind of personal, professional life and it's not the the apocalypse, uh, I think that's great. And I'll, I'll kind of echo that 
on my own life, like two factor everything. Cause I'm really terrified about someone getting into any of my cloud accounts and going nuts. Like I actually don't, I don't allow one account to do anything with other accounts. And I tend to do two factor and, and create 20 character passwords everywhere. Cause that's a fear <laughs> of mine. I really, I really don't yep. want to get, hacked. I actually had that happen like 14 years ago. So I got hacked and uh, it's, it's terrifying. So yeah. I would echo that. Even paranoia ever since. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, Chris, I completely agree with you on the, the two-factor authentication. I've started to turn that up in several different uh, applications now that support it. And uh, it's already come in handy where uh, in the Apple ecosystem, if someone tries to log into your iCloud account and you've got two-factor authentication enabled, it will pop up a message on anywhere that you're logged in and say, hey, someone at this location is logged into your account or trying to log into your account. In other words, they've got your password. And uh, should I allow this and you know let them punch in the code? And you're like, what? <laughs> no. In this case, it was coming from China. Yes, for just a fraction of a second, because that's what you're used to pressing. Uh, almost. <laughs> and then I saw the location coming from uh, Taiwan specifically. And I'm like, uh, wow, nope, I'm not there right now, as it turns out. So, Ken, uh, another security problem that is just chronic in the AWS world are, are S3 buckets being left exposed in some way, uh, or occasionally database being exposed to the internet and so on. What's going on? on here that such rudimentary, what you would think would be really basic security practices seem to leave these things wide open? Yeah. So I think a lot of that has to do with, so a lot of companies take what they, we call a lift and shift approach to cloud. And so if you're familiar with that, this idea of instead of kind of changing your applications, I'm just going to take my environment mostly as it exists on-prem, I'm going to move it to the cloud. So that makes it easy. Here's the problem. One of the things I always talk about is if you're if you have poor security practices on-premises, all you've done is now move those poor security practices into a cloud, into a more publicly exposed <laughs> work environment. Um, so, for example, uh, you know, I was a sysadmin, and uh, how many times have you, just for the sake of simplicity, told a developer, okay, I'm just going to, I'm just giving you admin rights to this entire folder. <laughs> Because um, I don't want to be, I don't want to have you be bothered. You having to contact me, you know, every few days because you want to give someone else permission to it, or you want to change something. That may work. That's not great, but it's not as, uh, but it's not as publicly exposable if it's a if it's behind your firewall. But now, yeah. what if I just take that approach and said, uh, take that that data and move it to the public cloud and just left it just as wide open as you did on premises. Now, all of a sudden, it's potentially everyone in the world <laughs> can get access to something that wasn't maybe as big a deal when it was behind your firewall. And that's the rub, right? Like, this stuff has always been happening, in my opinion. It's just normally the damage control is limited to internal because the edge firewall prevents access as a you know gateway of last resort. And now you've got stuff that's just literally exposed using a public IP, you know, just, just out there on the web. I remember seeing what was it, uh, various database servers kept getting hacked and used to, for like Bitcoin mining or denial services or something like that against GitHub, I think. Yeah. Uh, and then a week later, someone audited, you know, there was 96,000 exposed databases or, or instances running these database servers. And then it went up to like 110,000 the next week, like more of them happened. So it wasn't, there's not even like a course correction going on. I thought it was kind of crazy. It, it kind of brings up, how do we combat these security challenges, because it seems like being in the news isn't enough 
or in some cases like the Experian hack or the Experian, you know, vulnerability, it was like Bob didn't patch the servers. That's not a good answer. I mean, what are some ways we can combat this? Because honestly, it's it feels a bit hopeless from the outside looking in. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I, I think the starting point is, it's interesting, right? Years ago, people were like, I don't want to put stuff in the cloud because it's not secure. And it's more secure if I leave it, you know, in on my data center. And now you seem to be getting the other kind of the, the flip side where people go, if I put it in the cloud, I, I can trust AWS and Microsoft to secure it for me. And mm. and that's not the case. Um, clear, obviously, the, the public cloud vendors have good security practices, but they also talk about a shared responsibility model. They'll secure the infrastructure underneath your workload, but it's still up to individual customers to secure that workload. So um, getting back to that database situation, right? There's, um, I think, for a long time, in SQL, for certain versions of SQL Server, you could have a, a default user that had actually an empty password, literally no password at all. It's hard to guess an empty password, though. I can see why that's secure. Yeah. So, keep typing things in and it's like access to anyway, bad joke. Right. Oh, man. So just moving that to the cloud doesn't instantly plug that hole. <laughs> if, but would something like guard duty plug that hole? We're talking about the AI that would it just assess and say, okay, silly customer, you put something in here with no password. I'm going to fix that for you. Like, I, is that the way forward? We just let the robots determine that we're doing bad security or, or is there other actual ways to like fix this? I can see a day where we're basically relying on automation to take care of that, but I don't think we're there yet. I think right now we just people just need to, before they move to the cloud, they need to, instead of taking the approaches, if I move to the cloud, I'm automatically secure. They should say, what do I need to do to make sure I'm secure on-prem, right? And then and then think about, okay, once, once I'm secure on-prem, what do I need to do to move it to the cloud? And what do I need to do to change it then to make it equally secure or more secure uh, once it's sitting in the public cloud? Like a lot of users tend to use, I think you guys had someone who talked about networking on the show, talk about the concept of a default virtual, uh, default v- VPC or default virtual private cloud. Um, right, that rings a bell, yep. Yep, so because that's something that's cr- created by default, a lot of users, uh, what they do is they move their entire environment into the virtual private cloud. That, that default VPC, without thinking about the fact that the way that the default VPC is set up, it basically um, automatically has access to the internet. So if you put a database server that used to be internal access only, and you put it into that default VPC and don't put some guardrails around it, you've now instantly exposed that database server to the world, potentially. Now, Ken, AWS has got a, a lot of it gets complicated to try to figure out how to secure the environment properly. Now, I think worth highlighting here is that they have a lengthy white paper that kind of talks about that. And, uh, and it starts out just as that point you were making about shared responsibility. Uh, you talk about that white paper a little bit. Yeah, it's again, it's, it's a, um, as you mentioned, it's something that Amazon put out because they were seeing all these problems with people putting insecure things out on in on the cloud. And basically the white paper just outlines some base kind of best practices, recommended practices for how you could secure your environment. So stuff like what I just was mentioning about maybe not putting everything in a default VPC right. that's exposed to the internet. That would be an example of doing that. Uh, some of the kind of very basic principles are 
Um, that really is just best, I would argue, just basic uh, best practice for IT security in general is make sure you know what you actually have running in your environment <laughs> and what uh, what version of code <laughs> it is they're running on. It's concepts like make sure you encrypt everything that you have, all your data, uh, both in transit and at rest. And then stuff like only give people enough rights to do their job for as long as they need to do their job and not just give everybody admin privileges um, for the rest of their lives, even after they leave the company. All right, Ken. Well, I think we've picked your brain long enough here and definitely learned a lot about automation, DevOps, new things in Amazon, and how to protect all the things running in the public cloud that is AWS. Uh, For the folks that want to go a little bit deeper or maybe hit you up on social, where can they find you? Blog, Twitter, that kind of jazz. Sure. Easiest way to reach me is through Twitter at KenHoyNY. That's K-E-N-H-U-I-N-Y. And um, my DM is actually open, so you don't have to follow me uh, in order to message me. Um, I also blog about various things that we've talked about, uh, both at my company's blog, rubric.com slash blog. And also I have a personal blog where I try not to mention my work uh, place at all. It's called cloudarchitectmusings.com. Yes, cloudarchitectmusings.com. I wasn't aware of it before I knew we were recording with you, Ken, and found it. And I got to say, you are articulate and easy to read, and there's a lot of information there. These aren't just fun little <laughs> five-minute blog posts. There are some in-depth brain busters that are well worth your time uh, at cloudarchitectmusings.com. Good stuff. Thank you. Yeah, I think 20,000 word posts are uh, lightweights for uh, for Ken here. So, okay, well, that's it for today's edition of the Data Knots podcast. If you're social, you can follow me at Chris Wall on Twitter, and my blog is wallnetwork.com, or my delightful friend Ethan, he's at EC Banks on Twitter, and he's blogging over at packapushers.net. For more of our Data Knots shows about infrastructure engineering, do a nosedive down the rabbit hole that is packetpushers.net. You'll find a plethora of Data Knots shows talking about containers, conferences, certifications, clouds you name it it's there go listen it's free enjoy until then may your server lights blink your two factors be two factoring and your cables be cleanly managed what's your favorite podcast uh, besides yours? That's the <laughs> correct answer. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs>